Good evening. Glad to see you back this evening. Carl, on your sheet before you came in, really ringing in my ears, Jeremy. May not be ringing anybody else's, but. Sandra made me feel better this morning, or this afternoon rather, when she told me that she was in the nursery this morning and she looked up once and I was going like this. Next time she looked up, I was going like this. I think she was pretty well convinced that I'd finally lost it. She didn't have any sound to go along with those pictures. So she had to wait until she could talk to her daughter to find out what had actually gone on in the service. I've got some neat pictures over the last couple of weeks. In fact, I got one, a very nice one from uh, one of our teenagers. Did we get that on the slide or not? We did. Do you have that, Jeremy? Or Terry? It's a picture of a lion. <laughs> anyway, it's time to tell you who last week's uh, winner was, and the winner was Abigail Markham. Come on down. Now, what Dad says, though, really is what matters. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus chapter number 14. Ever found yourself in a predicament? We have a lot of different word pictures in the English language to describe what a predicament is. We hear phrases such as, you sure have painted yourself into a corner. I actually saw a skit with the Three Stooges doing that. And I think I may have actually done that once myself, painting, but I understand. And also, we say things like caught between a rock and a hard place, uh, being up against the wall, being in a pickle. At least one person has defined a predicament as being a lawyer who specializes in suing doctors for medical malpractice finding himself in need of a major surgery. That's a predicament. <clears throat> Moses and the children of Israel found themselves in such a predicament. Israelites found themselves literally trapped between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea. I hope after tonight's message I'm not going to leave you as confused as this little boy who told this story to his mother after Sunday school. Nine-year-old Joey was asked by his mother what he had learned in Sunday school that day, and he said, well, Mom, our, our teacher told us how God sent Moses behind enemy lines on a rescue mission. His mission was to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. When he got to the Red Sea, he had his engineers build a pontoon bridge, and all the people walked across safely. He then used his walkie-talkie to radio headquarters, and he called in an airstrike. They sent in the bombers to blow up the bridge, and all the Israelites were saved. 
Now, Joey, is that really what your teacher taught you? Well, no, Mom, but you wouldn't believe it the way the teacher told it. I hope you don't feel that way after this message tonight. Let's remember where Israel is. They've been in captivity in Israel. God has sent Moses to bring his people out of slavery. Pharaoh doesn't want to allow them to go. And, he, and so God has used a series of plagues to convince Pharaoh that he needs to allow the children of Israel to go. After the death angel appeared and the death of all the firstborn among the Egyptians, Pharaoh finally allowed the Israelites to go free. And we read in Exodus 13, 18. And so God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. Moses even tells us how God guided the Israelites in verses 21 and 22 of chapter 13. He says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of the cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. The great pillar began to lead the children of Israel even in the very beginning of their journey. And the pillar took on the appearance of smoke, a cloud by day, and a fire by night. Tonight's passage has four things to teach us about God's plan. First of all, God's plan, plans are not always logical. In Exodus chapter 14, in the first two verses, God orders a change of direction. The children of Israel have already started on their journey. It has seemed at best pretty strange, and at worst, this new advice seems risky and dangerous. It says, now the Lord, L-O-R-D, all in capital letters, which means Jehovah, And now Jehovah spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they turn and camp before Pi-Hiharoth, between Migdal and the sea opposite Baal-Zephon, and you shall camp before it by the sea. The children of Israel were, in effect, asked to backtrack, to go back in the same direction that they had already traveled. Their course was to take a direction which in a very short time would place them with the Red Sea in front of them, the wilderness on one side, the mountains on the other, and Pharaoh and his army behind them. They are boxed in. They have no escape. It was kind of like running from, for your life from a gang only to discover you've turned into a blind alley, a dead end. They can't go back. They can't go forward. The future looks impassable and the present seems impossible. But you need to understand that they've been led to the place that they now stand. They were not led there by Moses. They're not there by coincidental 
wandering there, there directly by the leading of God. Now, over a hundred years ago, F.B. Meyer wrote this. Often, God seems to place his children in positions of profound difficulty, leading them into a wedge from which there is no escape, designing a situation that no human judgment would have permitted had it been previously consulted. The very cloud that directs them there. You may be involved in a situation like that at this very hour. It does seem perplexing and mysterious to the last degree, but it's perfectly right. The issue will more than justify him who brought you here. It is a platform for the display of his almighty grace and power. Not only will he deliver you, but in so doing, he will give you a lesson that you will never forget. The second thing that I want you to see is that God's plans are not, rather God's plans are always made in advance. What we need to understand is God is not now, nor has he ever been, surprised. God was not surprised at this situation. He knew how it would end before it began. In verse 3, it tells us, he said, For the Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land, and the wilderness has closed them in. And then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them and he will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord and they did so. It's as if God says to Moses, now look, here's the plan. Pharaoh will hear that you're wandering back and forth in the desert and he's going to conclude This is my chance. They're lost. And I'll trap them. There'll be no way that they can escape. That, Moses, is the trap. But it's a trap for Pharaoh. God had it all arranged ahead of time. He always does. And according to verses 5 through 8, Pharaoh fell right into the plan. Pharaoh pursued the children of Israel with 600 chariots. He tells us that he overcame them while they were camping. It says in verse 10, and when the Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes and behold, the Egyptians marched after them so that they were very afraid and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Why did the Israelites who had just witnessed the remarkable power and deliverance of God now become fearful and begin to murmur against him. I think there are a couple of things that we ought to note in their defense. And first of all, that is that they were not all Israelites. According to Exodus chapter 12 and verse 38, not all of them are true believers. It says, and a mixed multitude came out of Egypt with them. There were hangers on, there were people who were married in Uh, Among the Israelites, and not all of them are true believers. Secondly, 
you'd have to realize that they have no written scripture at this time that they can turn to and say, and, and God has said, and here is God's promises to us. And third, you have to understand they have just spent hundreds of years as slaves, slaves living on the edge of subsistence, and they were, it was easy for them to give in to fear. The text says that the Israelites were not just afraid, they were very afraid. And that probably doesn't even begin to do justice to the terror that they felt as they looked back and saw Pharaoh's army approaching. Israel's response seemed naturally to give in to fear. We need to notice what fear does in verses 11 and 12. It says, and then they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Now think about that for a moment. There have been 400 years in Egypt and there are no graves there. Well, obviously that's not the truth. Why have you dealt with us so to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? Is that what they told Moses, that they wanted to continue to be slaves? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than we should die in the wilderness. Israel was afraid because they had their eye on the Egyptians and not upon the Lord. Fear comes, and we are, when fear comes, it distorts the truth. And we allow ourselves to be ruled over by doubt rather than by faith. Their statement that it would have been better for them to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness exhibits a remarkably short memory. But then don't we as believers sometimes do the very same thing? We act as if we regret having stepped out on faith when we see what is involved. The psalmist said in Psalm 106, in verses 7 and 8, Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for his namesake, that he might make his mighty power known. It's interesting to consider that Israel had trusted God for their deliverance, but they seemed to be unable to trust him for their present circumstances. But then that's not new. David despaired for his life. He said, I will perish one day at the hands of Saul. Elijah the prophet hid in a cave and asked to die. As Christians, we have trusted God to save us from our sins, but all too often we do not trust him with our circumstances if they seem dire. There are a lot of things that cause us not to trust. Oh, it's when we get that diagnosis for a disease for which there is no cure. When we have more month than we do money. When we have a, a child who refuses to do right, when we have a spouse who has rejected us, when we lose our job, there are all kinds of circumstances that can cause us to give in to fear. Gladys Alward was a missionary to China 
more than 60 years ago. She was forced to flee when the Japanese invaded Yangchen. But she could not leave her work behind. With only one assistant, she led more than 100 orphans over the mountains toward free China. It's recorded in a book entitled Hidden Price of Greatness. Here's what I wanted to share with you from that book and about that story. It says, during Gladys's harrowing journey out of war-torn Yangchen, she grappled with despair as never before. After passing a sleepless night, she faced the morning with no hope of reaching safety. A 13-year-old girl in the group reminded her of the much-loved story of Moses and the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. Gladys cried out in despair, but I'm not Moses. The little girl replied by saying, of course you aren't, but Jehovah's still God. She most certainly had a point. Gladys and the orphans made it through. They proved once again that no matter how inadequate we may feel, God is still God and we can still trust him. When the situation seems impossible, we just need to remember to have a personal confidence in God, to practice obedience to God and understand that God has a purpose in all the experiences we have in our lives. Third, God's plans do not need your help, only your obedience. God's answer through Moses to the murmuring Israelites is found beginning in verse 13. And there are four instructions that I would invite you to underline in this passage. And Moses said to the people, first of all, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. The second phrase is stand still. The third instruction is see, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you, this is the last thing, shall hold your peace. So God's instructions through Moses are fourfold and very simple. First of all, stop being afraid. That is Of course, their first and foremost problem, they're afraid. Secondly, he says, stand firm. Stand still might be better understood as stand firm, reflecting faith and confidence in the delivering power of God. Third, watch. Moses says, see. See what the Lord will accomplish for you today. God doesn't need your help. You don't need to fight. You need to stay out of the way and just watch what he will do. And finally, you need to keep silent. Hold your peace. Often the hardest for us to do is this last one. Because we often feel that we have to tell somebody about the predicament that we're in. But the only one who can do anything about our predicament already knows and he is waiting for us to look to him and be silent. All of those instructions are directed to natural human responses to panic. 
First, we're afraid. Second, we run. Third, we fight. And fourth, we tell everyone who will listen. God now speaks to Moses and says in verses 15 and 16, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. Have you ever considered the fact that God says, There comes a time when you don't need to pray anymore. Stop praying and start going. He says, tell the children of Israel to go forward. But lift up your rod, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the children of Israel shall go over on dry land through the midst of the sea. So literally, God told Moses to stop praying and start moving. Sometimes we pray and we get the answer and we don't like the answer and so we keep praying. And God's saying, don't keep praying, be obedient. Do what I've already told you to do. We're introduced to the pillar of cloud and and the pillar of fire earlier in chapter 13 in verses 21 and 22. But I want you to notice what it says in chapter 14 beginning in verse 19. This is something that is kind of struck me anew it says and the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of the cloud went before them and stood behind them so it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel thus it was a cloud of darkness to the one and it gave light by night to the other so that the other did not come near the other all that night. So I want you to notice something that I've read many times that it really never hit home. The angel of the Lord went before them and the cloud was behind them. Therefore, it was between them and the Egyptians. Now, I understood that as far as the Israelites and the Egyptians but I never applied it to my own life. Remember, at every turn in life, the Lord is between you and your enemy. He's not just in front of you leading you. He's behind you protecting you. Never thought about that. That God is not only in front of me leading me, he's behind me protecting me from my enemy. In the middle of the most difficult trial, he will shield us. In the midst of our darkest and most cold trial, he will light our way. He will go before us and he will make a way through the Red Sea. It's interesting to note that he did not remove it. He made a way through it. I don't know about you. I can't speak for you. I can only speak for myself. All too often, I pray, Lord, take this away. Take this away from me. Remove this from my life. Take me out of this trial. But he doesn't remove it. He helps us to go through it. And fourth and finally, God's plans are not limited to what is humanly possible. Verses 21 and 22 It says, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, 
And the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all the night. He made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. And so the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Now, some attempt to explain away the miraculous aspect of the crossing the Red Sea, and one popular view is that the Israelites were really not in the Red Sea, but in the Reed Sea. And that it was a generally shallow and marshy district, which had been cleared of water and made dry by the natural action of the wind and the sun. I will accept that naturalistic reasoning that it was merely shallow water, if you will explain to me how that shallow water drowned it, all drowned, I'm sorry, I said it again, <laughs> drowned all of the Pharaoh's army. You folks are going to have to get over that, by the way. <laughs> the conclusion of the story is told beginning in verse 23, and the Egyptians pursued and went after them in the midst of the sea and all of Pharaoh's horses and his chariots and his horsemen Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. I think that was probably an understatement. He caused the chariot wheels to come off of their chariots so that they drove them with difficulty. No wheels, very difficult. The Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea. The waters may come back upon the Egyptians on their chariots and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth with the Egyptians. He were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea And then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of the Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained, but the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on the left. And so the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. You ever seen those old depictions of this? Cecil DeMille's movie that shows the crossing of the Red Sea and there's this little narrow strip right through the middle of the Red Sea. That's great dramatic television. The only problem is there are two million Israelites who need to cross the Red Sea. Crossing three or four abreast, it's going to take them like five months. So they need about like five miles wide in order to cross in one night. So this is a much more mammoth uh, miracle than most people think about. But the return of the water brought an end to the Egyptian force that had committed itself to the pursuit and destruction of the children of Israel. I just read this and I thought I'd share it with you. Sophisticated computer calculations indicate 
that the biblical parting of the Red Sea, he said to have allowed Moses and the Israelites to escape from bondage in Egypt, could have occurred precisely as the Bible described it. Because of a peculiar geographical problem in the northern end of the Red Sea, researchers report in a 1992 bulletin of the American Meteorological Society that a moderate wind blowing constantly for about 10 hours could have caused the sea to recede about a mile and the water level to drop 10 feet, leaving dry land in the area where many Biblical scholars believe the the crossing occurred. Could have happened. I believe it did happen. Verse 31 reveals, Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. What I want you to see in closing is that coming to the Red Sea is just as much a part of God's plan as crossing it. A difficulty in God's hands is only a highway into the promised land. Why does God allow those predicaments to happen in our lives? Because often it takes those tight places to get us to look to him for help. Charles Swindoll in his book on Moses says, In many ways we have developed much like the Egyptians. We have developed a rather materialistic lifestyle. Like Moses and the children of Israel, you rub shoulders with folks in Egypt most of your life. You work with Egyptians. You think like Egyptians. You read Egyptian newspapers. You listen to Egyptian music. And you watch commercial battles among Egyptian entrepreneurs. You're in the competitive world of the Egyptians, so it's only natural that you would react like them. The interesting thing is it was a lot easier to get Israel out of Egypt than it was to get Egypt out of the Israelites. God's intention was that it would take one year, seven stops across the desert to teach them the lessons that they needed in order to enter the promised land. Instead, because of rebellion and an inability to deal with those problems, it took them 40 years. 40 years for God to work out some of the difficulties. Whether you know it or not, Whether you believe it or not, you live in Egypt. You deal with Egypt every day. You watch Egypt on your commercials. You work with Egyptians. And if we're not very careful, we begin to think like the world. And so we have to be very careful that we don't adopt their attitudes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for caring about us, loving us. Thank you for each one that's been so faithful to come tonight. I pray that you'd bless them for their faithfulness. Lord, if there's something you want to do in our hearts and lives tonight, we want to turn this time over to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.